Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. John Running joins us now, Chief Economic Advisor at Bring Capital. John, so many people come on the show and talk about the prospect of a policy mistake. John, you've repeated it a few times. You think the mistake has already been made? Well, the mistake was made last year. And the good news is, even if the Fed's not explicitly recognizing its mistake, treating inflation more as, uh, to use the uh, kids' book, a, a series of unfortunate events, with the latest one being... Uh, the commodity price impact uh, arising out of the Ukraine war. The origins of the inflation was the Fed's monetary largesse continuing to ease as the economy recovered, continuing to say inflation was just reopening in a handful of commodities that got broader based. They pivoted in December. They took a big step last week and on Monday with the uh, chairman's uh, speech to the uh, National Association of Business Economists. Uh, and now they're saying they'll do what they have to do. Um, but the problem is they're going to have to do a lot more than they would have had to do had they not eased so much as the economy was getting better. Jim Billard came on the show with Mike McKee. I'm sure you caught some of that exchange, John, just yesterday. And he talked up 1994 and the tightening cycle there and the soft landing that he says they achieved. Can you give me an idea of the kind of tightening cycle you're expecting, John, and what informs that view? Well, I think this is quite difficult because the Fed shifted to this average inflation targeting framework with backward-looking metrics for adjusting interest rates at liftoff. And we have way overshot any backward-looking inflation average, way overshot 2%. The current inflation rate in CPI terms is almost 8% and will go higher in all likelihood uh, in March. So we don't have a framework from the Fed as to how they are going to calibrate their policy response to the inflation problem. The fact of the matter is, inflation is so much higher than the level of interest rates that real interest rates are more negative than they have been. So we, we don't know how much of the inflation's transitory, to use that banned word now, in the sense of as the supply side gets better, supply chains improve and that comes down, and how much uh, is underlying. And I think that the underlying inflation measures suggest the underlying inflation rate is somewhere between 3 and 4%, looking at various Federal Reserve measures. So how does the Fed get there? I think the logic now, since the market's there, of making a few, one or two bigger moves, they, they, they did 50s and 175 back in 1994, um, I, I think that logic is there uh, be, since, since the market is essentially moving to pricing that. And then the question is the balance sheet. They have to get the balance sheet down. And I think they have to move uh, fairly decisively on the balance sheet. Uh, and that's going to be the next thing. We'll hear us in the Fed minutes and then uh, at the uh, early May FOMC meeting, how they're actually going to uh, work the balance sheet down. I'm going to ask a really basic question, John, because we've talking this morning about how financial conditions have actually been loosening after Fed Chair Jay Powell's speech last week. How does tightening Fed policy actually bring down inflation? Well, first of all, you have to say if financial conditions are easing, and this is a point that I know, uh, Jonathan, you discussed with my uh, colleague Conrad de Quadros, 
if, if financial conditions are easing, how is policy being tightened? So right now, we're not even close to beginning to tighten policy. Now, I will say that uh, the inflation process is a, a difficult one to understand. After all, the Federal Reserve didn't even see this coming. Um, they said inflation dynamics don't change on a dime, but they, but they have. But if we don't do something, then as we had in the late 60s and early 70s, these inflation expectations become embedded. And the more embedded inflation expectations are, the harder it is to get inflation down. So there's a signaling effect. Uh, there's a simple effect of starting to take liquidity out of the financial system. And there's uh, the effect of making the cost of money uh, actually something other than zero or massively negative in real terms. And all of those things are part of the process, somewhat mysterious, but part of the process of bringing inflation down. And if we, if it, it's not about meat packers, it's not about what companies are doing in terms of refining the oil and passing on gasoline costs. It, it's not about that. At, at its heart, it's about monetary conditions, which are far, far, far too loose. To be more blunt, John, do you have faith that the Fed, based on the market response, based on the actions they've announced, will be able to control inflation? Or do you think that it is unavoidable that we're going to get a hard landing based on the fact that they're going to have to tighten vastly more than some people are expecting? Well, I, I think there is a significant risk of a, a hard landing. And let's, since we're being blunt, let's say the word recession, um, I don't think this year, I don't think next year, but at some point, um, the monetary conditions are going to be inconsistent with the public's expectations. Because if you're going to get underlying inflation down to 2%, and everybody's transacting on the assumption that that's somewhere between 3 and 4%, which is where I think the public and corporate inflation expectations are, and the underlying price dynamics are, then it's that misalignment of the Fed's objective and the public's expectations that result in, in, in the hard landing. Um, the plane of the Fed talks, plain of the Fed talks, uh, the more decisive they are early, the better the risk that we avoid the hard landing going. The, the Fed historically, and, and even in the case of 1994, ended up doing too much too late. And that is one of the histories of monetary policy interventions. So now we're, we've got this backward-looking framework the Fed used. They're now talking about trying to balance aggregate demand and aggregate supply, and they're looking at the inflation rate. And their inflation forecasts are probably too low for the next three years. So does the Fed then continue to raise rates? Much better to move more decisively sooner. Even better, but without the time machine, we can't do this, to have not eased so much in the first place. So, John, is this effectively what you're saying, that there's not a binary outcome here of either the Fed tightening so aggressively to get inflation under control that it ultimately does cause a recession or not tightening aggressively enough and letting inflation run too hot for long longer? There is some form of middle ground. Uh, there might be, but it, it, that's like trying to land on the aircraft carrier at night with all your uh, infer, you know, all, all your navigation systems out. I mean, it, you can pull it off maybe. The greater risk in the short run is we have hotter inflation and then more of a monetary policy response. And, and let's face it, the Fed has signaled an enormous shift in the monetary policy response from December when they pivoted to three rate hikes to March when they indicated that seven rate hikes and a balance sheet adjustment of at least of the equivalent of another quarter point hike would be appropriate for this year. And that's fine. It's great. Get interest rates effectively back to 2% by the end of the year. The problem is 
the inflation rate's running at 8%. So that's not even beginning to get policy tight. And that's the problem here. The problem is, and, and so it's not the Fed rate hikes that cause recession. It's the Fed's easing so much last year that has allowed these inflation expectations to build up. The problem is to get down to 2% inflation, you have to bring those inflation expectations down. And that's, as our experience from the late 60s, early 70s, that's very difficult. But if you let it run out of hand too far, then you end up with a Volcker-style situation and a Federal Reserve doing, really doing whatever it takes. And that time, uh, that, that ended up in a very, very deep recession in 1981-82 and a very, very strong dollar. Back to where we started, John. The mistake already made. John, thank you, buddy. Fantastic to catch up with you. It's been too long. John Riding there of Breen Capital. Chris Morangi joins us now, co-chief investment officer at Gabelli Funds. Chris, let's start right there. Why are we rallying in the face of what we're seeing play out in this bond market? Well, I think there's an element of sell the news on two fronts. Obviously, you've got the Fed move, which was probably amongst the most telegraphed in history. And then the, uh, the war, which was also pretty well telegraphed. And um, so, you know, maybe things are not as bad as we first thought. Uh, but in addition to that, I, I hate to echo consensus. I don't mind echoing Lisa, but it's Tina. It's there is no alternative to, to U.S. equities. And when you think about uh, all the pressures in the world, there are few better places to put your money than the S&P and the NASDAQ, which are dominated by five or six companies that have fortress balance sheets, pricing power, little or no exposure to Russia and Ukraine. Chris, does Tina work? Does there is no alternative work when you have an actual recession and fundamentals that start to erode? Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that will be different this time is those FANG companies have gotten so big that they're no longer quite as acyclical as, as they once were. In other words, the cyclical, the, the secular growth won't necessarily overcome the cyclical pressures that Google and Facebook and others that live off of advertising face. So, so that's going to be, I think, a surprise for some people. Um, but other than that, yeah, listen, uh, if, if we enter a recession, it's it's probably not good for any company uh, in the U.S. Or, or, or around the world. But you've got to put your money somewhere. And, and Treasury is probably not a, still not a great place to, to do that. Okay, so that's kind of the larger cap fang names. Chris, what about elsewhere within growth? Is there anywhere that may be safe to be where it could play a little bit of defense yeah, so I think there's going to be a shakeout amongst some of these profitless growth companies. And of course, that's where, where value investors and that's I'm talking in my book. That's not where we play. Um, you know, some, some of the broken growth companies are, are going to survive and, and do well and kind of have some deja vu to, to 2000 in that respect. But again, we're, we're pretty focused on domestic companies, cash flow generators with pricing power, industries like waste collection, broadband luxury goods. And, and that's where we're, uh, that's where we have always invested. And that's where we continue to find value. Chris, is a bet on luxury goods still a big bet on China? Has that changed at all? Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and to a lesser extent, Russia. Um, and you've, you've seen that reflected in some of the, some of the names. But, um, you know, I look at a, a name like Diageo, which is sort of a luxury goods company. I don't know, I don't know what, whether you like Kettle or Bullet or Johnny Walker, but, um, you know, those are those are pretty resilient brands and they benefit, by the way, to a certain extent from reopening, which is still going strong as people return to on premise bars. Chris, what's the warning sign to you that perhaps you should rethink the thesis and perhaps the consensus is wrong? 
Well, wrong in which direction, I guess, is always the question that you have to ask. I mean, there, there are uh, some very positive outcomes in here, which you could see a, a result in a, in a melt up. Uh, again, I think that's a pretty low probability. On the other side, you know, we could get uh, a recession. We're going to get a recession at some point in the next few years. The question is when. And, um, you know, again, uh, we're not ones to time the market and, and go to cash. And, you know, obviously, if you stayed invested two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, uh, we were at the bottom of the S&P. You did pretty well. And I think it's the same case here. There's a man in cash who would actually have known every <laughs> single brand that you've recommended there and he's not here today Chris and I'm sure he's really upset Chris Moranji there of Gabelli Funds Chris thank you Gargi Chowdhury the head of iShares America's investment strategy at BlackRock Gargi markets are meant to anticipate perhaps on Wednesday they've got some clarity about the future plans of this Fed and that's why we got some form of a snapback rally what are your thoughts Gargi on what's happening with this equity market versus what we've seen in bonds Sure. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. So going into the Fed meeting on Wednesday, if someone had told all of us, everyone that watches the market, that the Fed would be aggressively hawkish and then follow up again on Monday at the NAB conference, sounding even more hawkish and using the word expeditiously as opposed to steadily when they describe their rate path. And then if you looked at what uh, the equity market, especially the growthier parts of the equity market would do, I think we'd all be surprised. Not to mention that there's a backdrop of a war, there's high inflation. Um, so there are some uh, movements in the markets that don't uh, make a whole lot of sense, but I think it's telling us something. I do think that this move in equities is telling us perhaps that uh, the Fed is not going to be able to go as much as they, what is currently being priced in and also as much as they're indicating to us, or at least that's how I'm reading it. Let's go derivative then. If markets are treating this as though the Fed can't raise rates that much, does that actually give the Fed the ability to raise rates that much in order to convince markets, yes, we will go that way? I mean, look, we have to think about why they want to raise rates, right? So we know that they're obviously staring at a close to 8% headline CPI at the face. But we also know the mathematics of CPI just because of the way base effects are going to turn out by the middle of the year. There are going to be many reasons to believe that inflation is going to come back down from this very high level that we're Wait, going to see hold in on the a next second. couple of months. So you're basically so, edifying... Transitory. I'm sorry to cut you off, but hold on a second. You're in camp transitory still. You think that story is not dead. I was never in camp transitory and not in camp transitory even now, but I'm just saying that today's levels are not going to be at uh, be persistent. Inflation is still going to be high. Don't get me wrong. We're not going to go back to pre-pandemic levels for a very, very long time. But much of the inflation that we're seeing now is actually being caused by the supply side, not by the demand side. So if you're looking at food prices, if you're looking at energy prices, if you're looking at auto prices, some of these are running at significantly higher levels than we've seen in the past, and they are related to supply chain disruptions or supply disruptions, not mm -hmm. just supply chain disruptions. And yeah. I don't know that the Fed raising by 200 basis points is really going to make a dent on auto supply or food prices or energy prices. Well, speaking of those higher commodity prices, Gargi, given how far they have run up and you're indicating that some of that will begin to normalize, is it too late to start trying to play the derivative of that in the equity market, being in energy, getting into materials at this point? 
Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we've been talking about sort of uh, the value and quality barbell sort of from the beginning of the year, in fact, even from the middle of last year. And we've been telling our investors that they should be focusing on some of those value sectors of the market, the financials, obviously energies and barbell that with quality companies. QUAL is a, a ticker that gives you access to that. And those are, again, companies that do well, have better pricing power in a rising uh, prices, rising inflationary environment. Now, going back to your earlier question around how can you play that despite the rise up in energy prices and the rise up in commodity prices, one of the things that I think investors should continue to focus on is actually using commodities as a hedge. And we've talked about the need to hedge for inflation. Like I said earlier, we're not in the transitory camp at all. You need to be thinking about hedging inflation in a multi-asset fashion. You know, I've been here before and I've talked about tips. Tips have obviously had an incredible run. I think now is the time, and it's perhaps been a time for um, some time now, to add commodities as well. And again, this is where we think a diversified basket of commodities make a lot of sense, like COMT. And again, this is not just a energy price story. Obviously, we've seen that rally over 50%. I think this is much more around uh, food prices, agriculture prices, about industrial metals, precious metals, all of these which are having some supply and demand imbalances, as well as structurally, there's a reason to own them going forward, given the transition to net zero. Gargi, is there any reason right now to own longer dated treasuries? Um, I'd say that if you are a pension client and you're looking at your funded status and you have had a huge improvement in your funded status, then yes, to de-risk, maybe you want to be owning 10-year uh, treasuries at 236 as opposed to 2% just a few weeks ago. But outside of that, outside of actually needing it for your liabilities, I think um, you know interest rates are still going to move higher, especially in the longer end of the curve, so that 10-plus sector. Um, so I don't think so, no. I, th I think that if you have the liability needs, then yes. But outside of that, I don't think so. However, I will say that the front end of the market, and again, um, you know, I started off by saying that, uh, the, you know, I don't think the Fed will be able to go as much as what's priced into the market, which means that the front end is uh, reaching some exciting levels. So if you've been sitting in cash and you're looking to step out, sort of that zero to three year part of the Treasury curve is beginning to look rather attractive at close to 220. Gargi, thank you. As always, Gargi Chowdhury there of BlackRock. Typically, when a president goes abroad in a moment like this one, he goes with some deliverables. Anyone with any kind of interest in foreign diplomacy knows that a lot of this is orchestrated, and this is exactly what our next guest says. Here's the quote. Presidential trips are usually planned months in advance and are orchestrated down to the final detail. But this one there is a bit more uncertainty. The author of that line, that quote, Isaac Boltanski, the Director of Policy Research at BTIG. Isaac, how strange is this to go to Europe in a moment like this one without deliverables? It's abnormal to say the least. I mean, these things, as you know, are usually planned down to the most minute detail, where the little flags go, and there are months of negotiations over the communiques that are produced. But this time is different, and the president is going in without as much normal planning as, as we've seen in the past, which adds some uncertainty. And I, I think that the biggest issue, at least for me, is what is this actually going to do to the overall negotiations, overall landscape, whether it's with Russia or 
the conversation regarding energy. And at the moment, given that there's no foreshadowing of what's coming out of there, I think there's some question for the investment community. As it, we're all assuming there are no deliverables, of course. There might be something happening that we just haven't heard about. They might be planning for something. What we have seen over the last few weeks, in fact, the last few months, is when the vice president has gone on these trips to Europe, a lot of people have considered them to be a total failure because she's gone with no deliverables. Now, often when we have events like this, we talk about what does success look like? And I know it sounds cliche, but it's important. What is success for this president on this trip? Yeah, look, this is this is statecraft at the highest level and it's diplomacy um, in its purest form. And the way that I think about that is diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way. Right. And I think that the president is going to Europe in the hopes of getting European countries to band together and show a unified front. And I think that that will come in, in really three forms. Number one is a reaffirmation of the commitment to NATO. And I think that that's one of the easier parts of this whole trip that can come in the form of a speech and, and other commitments that I think we'll see right away. Um, the second part is a European USA statement on China. Can they find key similar language regarding uh, the stance on uh, China's support of Russia? And can they warn China against actually supporting Russia either militarily or economically in a way that doesn't push China further into Russia's camp. And then the biggest one and the most difficult one and the one that I don't think we're going to have an easy answer for is energy. I don't think that there is a clean, clear win given some of the differing views over Russia's energy. Isaac, how important will it be to gauge what the potential red lines are that Russia would cross and what the potential NATO response would be to those? And I'm thinking about chemical or biological weapons or, you know, as some people postulate, perhaps even down the line, nukes. Yeah, look, I think that at least for this summit, they're going to avoid using red line um, commentary. I think that this is about building a multilateral unified front around NATO, saying that NATO sovereign countries will have the support of all other NATO members. And frankly, I think they're going to avoid some of the more um, red line-esque rhetoric regarding certain levels of chemical weapon usage or weapons of mass destruction or even cyber warfare, because there hasn't been enough groundwork done yet on the diplomacy side to have definitive red lines like that. And that's part of the problem with going into meetings like this without the months of due diligence and planning and, and talks that are normal. Isaac, how much leverage has the U.S. and its broader alliances lost for when they're trying to get the Kremlin to change its behavior by from saying from the beginning, we will not be putting boots on the ground, that use of force is not on the table. Is it so much about what the West is willing to do or what it is not willing to do? Yeah, look, I think one of the storylines here is, is that our limitations are going to be on display as well, right? We're going to hear a lot about unity and, and a concrete solidification of the NATO alliance in Article 5, and that's going to be very important. But I think we're also going to see clear and stark repose some of our limitations. And here I'm talking about a reaffirmation that we're not going to be part of uh, the imposition of a no-fly zone that we are going to remain cautious about transferring Soviet-era fighter jets. Because the fear of escalation is part of the West's calculus here. President Biden and Europe and everyone who is in a position of power in the Western 
anti-war alliance is deeply concerned that if they go one step too far, there will be an escalation that will lead to World War III. And that has been part of the calculus from the beginning. It's going to remain part of the calculus, especially during this trip. Isaac, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. As always, Isaac Botansky there of BTIG. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.